listening to Feel Free to Deviate, the podcast about people, their careers, and their relationships with success. My name is Jim Turbert, and I'm the host of the show. The guest on this episode is an old chum named Andrew Whitehead. I've known him since high school, I've played music with him, and we have driven great distances together. While we were arranging the appointment for this talk, he suggested that he was the first all-business guy that I've had on the show. I guess that's debatable, but I'll let the episode fill in the details for you. Andrew was an actor, now he sells solar panels, and he did some other stuff along the way. Additionally, he has a pile of kids who were thrust on him all at once. This is a fast-paced episode with very little nonsense. I tried to throw in some nonsense because that is my way, but Andrew was in full-on presentation mode and was unwilling and unable to be derailed. I mean, he wasn't trying to sell me solar panels or anything, but he was definitely loaded up and ready to go, like one of those trains blasting through snow that you see on YouTube sometimes. All that said, he paints a detailed picture of how his career evolved in an artful combination of deliberate and fortuitous moves to various jobs in various places across the great United States. So strap in and get ready for the ride. This is my conversation with Andrew Whitehead. We used to get sausage from Bruno's Market in Winstead, Connecticut all the time, served by your grandfather. Yeah, yeah, from Nani Bruno. That was some good sausage. That makes sense. You grew up up the street. I know. It was a mile from my house. My mom would stop there on the way home from work. It was a proper butcher shop in there. It sure was. It was awesome. Yeah. I wish, you know, I wish I had, you know, had the had the wherewithal to say, hey, I can learn some life skills. My grandfather's a butcher. That would have been so cool, man. I still don't know a, a, a porterhouse from a, or what have you. It's just, I'm, I'm as... I'm as blind as any other person who maybe didn't grow up with a butcher as a grandfather. I know some some of the major cuts of meat, but not the minor ones. I'm excited because you've had so many cool guests on your podcast, but... I really have. Yeah, it's amazing. But I think I might have the distinction of being the first business. My My job title is Solar Business Development Manager. I've been a business development guy now yeah. for a decade. And, you know, that's a fancy word for salesperson. Yep, it is. I was like, I might be Jim's first business job, J-O-B type, you know, person who's not doing something amazing and cool, like education or arts or, <laughs> you know. You're selling solar panels. That's pretty cool. If you're going to sell something, that's that's a pretty cool thing to sell, I, I think. And also, everything has to be sold. It is cool. It's very collaborative. It's not the kind of thing you're just, you're going out there and you're an island. I get to work with engineers and electricians. It's something that, you know, it was a very intentional choice um, when I made it. I said, I want to get into the renewable energy game. That was really the big singular pivot of my kind of professional life. Mm-hmm. When the Great Recession hit in 2009 and my wife, that girlfriend at the time, moved to Santa Fe, that was the greatest time ever to make a pivot. So what happened was when I followed her out to Santa Fe and I was collecting a generous New York State unemployment check and discovered that Santa Fe Community College had an environmental technology associates program. So I, I signed up and went back to school and I got a two-year degree in environmental technology. That's awesome. Which was all about solar. I had to take a lot of math. I had to take a lot of electrical engineering classes on sustainability and sustainable architecture and sustainable design and, you know, the, just the theory of systems thinking and sustainability and all of these other attributes that when I was close to wrapping up that degree, I, I went to work as a solar installer. I spent the better part of a decade selling, uh, you know, luxury condominiums in Brooklyn and Manhattan. And it was a fun job. It was an exciting high stakes type of job, but there wasn't a lot of soul satisfaction in it. I don't consider myself a good salesperson. Why? I, well, you know, in the in the in the old school textbook sales process, there are strategies, there are oh. uh, methods and means and things you do and don't do. I've never I've never taken a any kind of formal or even informal sales training. A lot of people do. But you're an actor. I'm a 
so a, a thespian i'm sorry <laughs> neither uh, i i really think what you know I, I don't think this i mean i've done you've heard of the clifton's strengths finder i have not it's it's okay <laughs> well i've done it for at least my last my my current company and the company i was working with in texas who i, I you know i was i was there for i think nine years so it's a comprehensive survey you go through a couple hundred questions yeah and then it spits out this report and it says here are your top five strengths or attributes and then here's how you interpret those and you know i've done it a handful of times now for a couple different employers over the years and i always you know i always end up with communication in in the top five yeah and um the other one that my wife likes to uh poke fun at me about is woo woo is considered a strength woo is being like flavor flav yeah like it not not like tang clan but uh w-o-o yeah no yeah no like you're, yeah. you're like a cheerleader or something right yeah it just you know it, it's i i don't i don't think there's a straight line between woo and the power of persuasion uh-huh. it is a big part of what separates someone who like say is like a, a successful business development person uh-huh. just a straight salesperson is building that relationship yeah you know so you engender that trust and credibility and they oh. consider you a, a, a trusted advisor or a resource and that's kind of the name of the game what separates the successful from the unsuccessful person is do they trust you? A long time ago, about, I guess it was, let's just say it was 2010. I talked to a guy who was an engineer and he designs or builds or works for a company that makes solar panels. And at that time he was telling me, yeah, this technology is awesome, but it is completely not worth it. You're never going to recoup it. But I get the impression that that has changed because like they're really pushing it here now. And of course, there's obviously electrical cars everywhere, but I'm just wondering, and I keep hearing anecdotes from people saying, yeah, I get money back from the grid every <laughs> every month or every year or whatever. So I'm just wondering, when did it become efficient enough to be mainstream? Yeah, well, you know, it's wildly different based on your location, and it has absolutely zero to do with the amount of sunshine that you get. Okay. It's just, it's all about how much or how little the local powers that be, the government, the utilities, either support or suppress okay. renewable energy initiatives. So the, so the infrastructure has to be optimized. The infrastructure has to be optimized, and they have to not be aggressively against solar power. Massachusetts is one of the most solar-friendly environments on the planet, and it has... They get, they get terrible sunshine in Massachusetts. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because this conversation, you know, when you're talking about how California is different than Texas, is different than Ohio, is different than New Jersey, based on the government's position to renewable energy. Hmm. Then, of course, it's like, well, when is this when is this technology going to be able to stand on its own, you know, without any support or encouragement or incentives from the government? Mm-hmm. And the counterpoint to that argument is there is no free market in the energy game. Natural gas, oil, all of these carbon intensive energy sources, yeah. they are all heavily subsidized. I mean, you could make a very strong case that wars have been fought in Billions, if not trillions of dollars have been spent what are you specifically about? <laughs> to, support, to, to support the oil industry. That's kind of the back pocket counter to, well, why does solar need incentives? Why does wind need incentives if oil and natural gas don't? And they, there's, no free, there's no free market, uh, you know, in the literal sense. I mean, everything is subsidized and supported. Now, with what's happening in Russia, people are seeing their energy prices go up in Ohio. It's like that everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is. It is like that everywhere. So prices were going up before that as well. It just got worse. They were, yeah, and prices were going up on everything. So I did residential solar sales for the first handful of years when I moved to Texas. I didn't want to be climbing up and down ladders and working on rooftops anymore. So I decided to get back into the business of sales. But you know, I say I'm not a good salesperson. I'm a, I think I'm an okay communicator and a trustworthy person because I'm not out to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. I'm only really comfortable selling something I understand. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's my secret sauce, and it's not like it's any particularly delicious sauce. It's just straightforward. I can't BS my way into you know. You got the flavor. 
Yeah, and, and into talking someone into doing something. You know, I understood residential solar because I had spent the better part of a couple of years. I was basically labor. I carried solar panels and I turned a wrench. Can you wire a house? No, but I can do I can do some basic stuff around the house. Nice. I got this certification. It's called the NABSEP certification. It's a brutal acronym, but it's the only certification that really matters for solar professionals. So when I moved to Texas and so I didn't want to be an installer anymore. Suddenly I found myself and like, oh, I'm a little bit of a hot commodity because I've got all this sales background and I've also got this strong technical credential. As a salesperson, it's not particularly hard to get a job. If you are working on commission, anybody will give you a shot. All they care about is whether you can sell it or not, right? Right, right, right. But I ended up finding this really cool company. They were uh, mom and pop, uh, family owned, pretty, pretty small front of house. You know, there were only maybe a dozen people, but then they had this huge construction workforce and they did these big projects. They they didn't have a residential solar program. So I was like, look, this is what I want to do. I want to work with homeowners and help them go solar. So I got to build up that program and then did that for a few years pretty successfully. But to be honest... It wasn't the kind of job that I could have supported a family with three kids. You know, the the lean years were heavily subsidized by the fact that my wife had a fantastic job. Yeah, man, but you're a team. That's cool. I mean, I, 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 I can't support my family either alone. I think this is probably the trajectory for a lot of people in the solar sales game. I was, you know, I did, I did residential for, uh, I think, four or five years, and then they kind of graduate you up. You know, the the story they gave me was you can make more money for the company and yourself going after businesses, you know, working that commercial side of the solar game. Isn't selling solar panels and selling real estate in New York City, they're two of the best things to sell because they sort of sell themselves. People who are interested in solar panels are pretty much going to buy them anyway. And people who are interested in living in a fancy condo in New York are pretty much going to buy it anyway. Well, you know, the, 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 I mean, there's competition. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, I'm just saying like there are worse, there are worse games to be in. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the value proposition of solar is still somewhat, it's, it's less desirable than a lot of other improvements or a lot of other places a, a private company can put their money. Like what? Like what? Like geothermal. They're going to drill a giant well underneath the building. Energy efficiency. Oh, so, like fiberglass. You know, right. Or, or just putting installing LED lighting. They don't do that already? Most businesses are already doing that. Yeah, of course. The honest approach to really best serve any industry is to make your facility as efficient as possible first. So you're consuming less energy and then look at on-site renewable energy. A lot of people, it's like, you know, you live or die by your sale. And I'm in a very different world now that solves a lot of short-term problems for me personally, because I was preparing the family with, for, you know, look, I am a salesperson. I, I you know, it took me years to build up, uh, uh, you know, the relationships that I had in Texas. There could be a couple of years of, of, of it being kind of lean in a new world. But what is your lady doing? Is she still working in the jewels industry? In a very different capacity. Okay. Her company went out of business a year into quarantine, and that was when we decided to relocate. The first nine months of quarantine, even being locked home with our kids, as tough as that was, was really cool because we worked side by side in our bedroom and, and I got to see what she did and she got to see what I did. And it was, it was awesome because I, it gave me a whole new appreciation for, you know, what a badass she is. Talk about how the sausage is made. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, this was some, this was some beautiful sausage making. Um, so she's doing that on a part-time basis. You know, she's able to spend say five, 10 hours a week doing that and that's perfect because she's also able to you know run the house and run the kids you got to run those kids run them into the ground i now know a lot about solar stuff now my resume is that line of you know my bachelor's degree in theater studies it says trained actor thespian it just says ba theater studies the reality is that you are a trained actor and you were pretty serious about it i think i was but i had this kind of achilles heel which is while I loved doing it, I loved performing, I loved being part of a production. Yeah. I hate auditioning. Oh. Hate the, and that's that's the job. Aren't you every day when you're selling stuff, isn't that like an audition? Well, it's not totally dissimilar because, you know, it does equip you with the reality of rejection. 
and the ability to brush that off. Yeah. But I'm not particularly great at dealing with rejection or brushing it off. You don't, you don't give yourself enough credit. I mean, everyone has an idea of themselves in their head, I suppose. But from the outside, it looks like you deal with it, that sort of thing pretty well, historically. So, well, yeah, I mean, you know, and this is something as as a parent now, kind of fumbling my way through this process of trying to teach your kids how to be more resilient, not to fall apart yeah. when they face adversity. I'd say I'm I'm maybe, maybe getting a C plus, B minus. <laughs> how do you even teach that? I don't know. I if you know, tell me or if anyone knows. I mean, we're... I don't know. We, t- we talk about it a lot. Me too. It's a mystery to me. So it's very apparent to, to Gretchen and I is our, you know, our kids need to be more resilient because there's, there, there's a lot of falling apart at the slightest headwind. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, but that's also partially the age. They're what, six? Yeah, they're going to be they're going to be seven in June. So, but you know, it's interesting because it's like when you see your kids modeling the behavior that you want to change it you know i feel like it's it's a mirror back at myself totally it's it's like by the way this is where you are failing exactly and oh and you know what else it is when you think about oh i hated that about my parents and then you see it in your children and you're like oh geez where'd they get that it happens all the time <laughs> it happens so often i love to criticize my parents believe me they're not listening so there's absolutely no repercussions for saying things about my parents i love to criticize my parents it's one of my favorite things to do i do it far more than any man my age should do i also totally realized that i learned everything from them they made me the awful person that i am today and now i'm training a new generation um on the bright side do you feel successful well, yeah, in a way, I definitely feel successful in that, you know, I, I feel like we're generally speaking, broadly speaking, we're winning at the game of life. You know, we're solidly middle class. I, I don't know what I don't know what the current situation is, but I remember FaceTiming you at the, the last location. I understand it's in Texas, but it was big. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was big. Texas big. But it was, you know, there were there was like that first that first year we were in that that big house in Texas where we felt house poor. And it's not that we overreached on the price, but we then put a lot of money into that house to make it the house we wanted. The end of the story worked out great because we sold it last year when prices were bonkers. So we did fine ultimately, but there was a a pretty lean year when we were kind of like, Ooh, maybe we shouldn't have gone this crazy, but it was such a lifesaver. I mean, we were quarantined. We were sheltering at home with our, at the time, five-year-old triplets for nine months. We were all home every day. And you know, we've had those conversations with with our kids. They're like, so people live in apartments? They're like, what's that like? I'm like, you wouldn't be able to do laps between the living room and the kitchen. So I was so anti ever owning a pool. I still am now that we don't own one, but we owned one in Texas and that saved our ass. When we started that year, they were wearing water wings. And then by the time we got out of quarantine, I mean, little little Olympic swimmers in there. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're not awesome swimmers. Whatever. You, you got to see firsthand the growth over the course of the year, which is pretty amazing. My, my mom had given them a bounce, one of those inflatable bouncy houses for, uh, for their birthday. You had one? You owned one? We owned one. What the hell? And, and we had we had an inflatable bouncy house next to the pool. So what happens when an inflatable bouncy house ceases to be a treat and it be, just becomes an everyday item? Oh, my kid, these kids are spoiled. <laughs> it sounds like they might be. They are super spoiled. I mean, we're, we we try to teach them that you don't get everything you want. That's when the lack of resiliency really shines bright. This happened this morning. I was giving each of the kids a dollar to buy these things the school sells once or twice a month called spirit sticks and it goes the money goes to the PTA. I still don't know what a spirit stick is, but oh my gosh, my little girl just fighting with me to get a second dollar for two spirit sticks, one for each hand. <laughs> and I was like, I'm giving you money. I'm giving you a dollar right now for nothing. <laughs> and you're throwing a fit cuz you're not getting two. Yeah. Jeez. It's a uh, it's crazy stuff, spirit sticks. It's a good scam though on the part of the school. I want to talk about the transition from theater guy to selling luxury condos in New York. I guess maybe you never really thought of yourself as going full on in acting, but you know, I used to go to your your performances and you seem to be in a lot of them. So that made me think that you were into it. 
But I also remember the transition from working in the theater world to selling condos was pretty smooth. How do you become the theater kid? Because you were known as the theater kid. So much so that they did a show at my school and they recruited you to come and be in. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. I think, you know what? I think I think a, like a lot of probably young people gravitate towards the activity you get positive recognition for. Uh. I mean, that was it. It was back in elementary school. I was I was Charlie Brown in fifth grade. And then I went into middle school and I, I, you know, auditioned for the high school production and I got in the high school production when I was in middle school, probably like a lot of other kids. You know, people were literally applauding. But it was that that one activity that I got a lot of positive recognition for. Of course, you want to keep doing it. I think that's how theater has become theater. I mean, you also enjoy it. Suddenly, popularity didn't really matter anymore. And I just had this new group of weirdos who were the most fun people ever to hang out with, a.k.a. the theater kids, playing D&D and watching Monty Python movies. This is how theater kids become theater kids. You know, you it's it's fun. You have to commit a ton of time. Like, I, we'd go there. I mean, I think it was four or five nights a week of rehearsal. And, you know, you spend months rehearsing and working with the same group of people you get you get tight oh, no, i know I, I did a play once and it was awesome i had a a really hard time when i first left high school uh, I, I went into a a, a bfa program uh, new paltz right as soon at new paltz yeah they had these late auditions for the bfa program and i did a monologue that i had from one of the shows i did in high school i haven't thought about this in a long time but on the first day of like acting one with the chair of the department and he looked at me he's going around the room he looks at me he's like you auditioned for me the other day didn't you and i was so proud i was like yeah i did that was me he's like come see me after class and that conversation is like i want you to do some more work i want you to come back and audition again don't worry about making it in the program but we have zero idea who you are because I had come in and I was bouncing off the walls and just super high energy and was, big air quotes, performing. And that's what I thought acting was. And he was like, we have no idea who you are. Because I wasn't bringing any of myself. I, w- I wasn't approaching it that way, which is, you know, through, you know, later study, you know, acting involves a tremendous amount of honesty and emotional vulnerability and empathy and, and all of those true things of yourself that you bring to the, the the role. I was coming at it 180. I was like, no, I'm acting. I'm I'm performing. I'm pretending. So that was a tremendously humbling experience. The first year went great. And then my sophomore year, I got called back for the big, you know, faculty production show, but I didn't get cast in that show. And oh my gosh, it hurt so much. And like the ne- it never happened to me before because I'd come from the, you know, big fish small pond scenario. That was just like, it was disproportionately emotionally debilitating. And I didn't know at the time what it was, but, you know, I was also dealing with some, you know, very basic mental health issues. You know, I had some manic depression or bipolar at that time. And I dropped out of school and, you know, it took me, took me a few years to get back on track. You know, after living up in Massachusetts with y'all and establishing residency and decided to go to UMass, I was 100% determined I'm going to go to theater school and I'm going to learn a trade. I'm either going to be a stagecraft guy or ideally a sound design guy. And I did. I did sound design on a, on, a, on, a, on a few student productions, which was really fun. You know, so even, you know, even back then when I was, when I was doing this and this was my thing, I was still kind of had, you know, one, one foot out the door. Acting and performing, you know, making a career out, making a job out of it requires a tremendous amount of discipline. And I saw kids who had that discipline. When I graduated from theater school, there were kind of two paths and the folks who were serious about acting went to the West coast and all of the people I knew who were in the, the technical world, lighting, sound, stage, scene, uh, scenic design, all moved to New York. And I wanted to move to New York because that's where I knew people. I spent probably about six months working, um, you know, lighting jobs and uh, scenic design jobs. I mean, they were just good hourly wage type work because I had lots of friends in that world who were, you know, hey, come come do this light hang for the weekend and work 24 hours in a weekend and, you know, make some scratch. And that was enough to get by. My, my brothers, I mean, they're in their early 20s and these guys are together and on career paths. I was I was in the, the, the second half of my 20s and just, you know, goofing around. Hey, but don't you think it's weird when somebody in their early 20s is that focused on a career path? Maybe it's, it's weird because of the people that I know and hang out with. I guess it's not weird, but 
especially if you're coming from an arts background, I don't think it's that weird. I, nobody knew what the hell they were doing. I was on the subway. I'd probably been in New York maybe a year tops. Probably not even. It's probably somewhere between six months and, and a year. And ran into an acquaintance on the subway. And he said that he had gotten his real estate license and was, you know, running around the city, showing people apartments and how fun it was. And I was like, oh, okay, I can do that. You know, so I went and got my real estate license and I uh, ran into a someone I, I, I had known from doing theater. And she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I, I, got, I got a real estate license. And um, so she's like, I'm working for this company, uh, which turned out to be the Corcoran Group, which is like one of the kind of the big marquee brand name real estate firms in New York. They were hiring admins. So rather than hustling around the city working trying to rent people lofts. I got a job working at this building in, in South Williamsburg called the Gretsch building. It was the old Gretsch guitar factory, which I thought was really cool. That's super cool. Yeah. And it was being converted into luxury condominiums. And this would have been like 2001, 2002, 2003, somewhere in that vintage, which was kind of the early days of the real estate bubble that exploded in 2009. I got this desk job and, you know, was there for about, I think, a little over a year and was, you know, made some made some good relationships with the people who were working there. One of them took me under her wing. She took me to uh, Express in Soho and bought, and bought me a couple of suits. She's the one who kind of championed me and got me my first job on the floor. Now, why did she do that? What, what, was, it, what was it about you that made her do that? Or did she just do this with all the, the promising young salespeople? I'm sure she's done it with plenty of people before and since. You know, we got along really well. She was really cool. And we just became kind of friends. I, I covered for her a lot. At the, <laughs> because this was at the time when a number of people who worked New York real estate also worked Miami beachfront real estate. And so she was down, she was down there a lot. So there were lots of Monday mornings when I covered for her. And, you know, that's just what I thought would be good. Look out for my boss. Yeah. So she really championed me and got me my first kind of, kind of real gig as a, you know, person who was actually on the floor working directly with customers and selling them stuff in Dumbo. My next job was in Battery Park City. If you're going to build a building in Battery Park City, New York, you have to build it sustainably. You have to have what they call LEED certification. LEED is like the U.S. Green Building Council certification for sustainable building practices. So it was this really amazing building. And I mean, this is where I got to meet Leonardo DiCaprio, David Gahane from Depeche Mode and Tyra Banks and Cameron Diaz. And it was just that kind of every, you know, celebrity who wanted to buy a responsible multi-million dollar condominium in downtown New York. It was their, it was their spot. But that's where I first time in my life I saw solar panels. They had this thing I've never seen before since where the crown of the building, where all the mechanical stuff is, was a, a tracking solar panels that tracked east to west. It definitely kind of supplied a sense of meaning to all of this luxury real estate. I mean, sure. it was a job and a role where you were really almost exclusively catering to that 1%. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you're talking about some pretty, pretty high profile people here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that was your whole your whole life. And and so there was not like I took it home and couldn't sleep at night, but there was that sense of, you know, is this really what I'm doing with my life? I set out on a path to become Corcoran's sustainability guy. And me and a couple other people went out and got our accreditation, this uh, US Green Building Council accreditation, lead accreditation. In my mind was I'm gonna be the you know, quote unquote, green realtor guy. So I'll get put on all of these cool buildings and it almost worked, Okay, you know, because after that building in, uh, in, in Battery Park City, I got drafted to work on this building in the West Village that was even more crazy expensive and luxurious. But, you know, this was, of course, when things all were really falling apart. Fall of 2008, probably. Yeah. I consider myself to be a success in that I told my I was working in Texas for a company. We were there. I was there for about you know, nine plus years. And I said, hey, we're going to be moving to Ohio in six months. And they said, we want to keep you on. You know, we know you can do it because you, you, you were successful working remotely. So I worked remotely for my previous employer for six months. And during that time was 
talking to the guys I'm working with now, the nice thing about living close to family was my brother-in-law introduced me to one of the higher ups at this company, literally at their, at their skeet shooting club. He took me out there. We did a little, you know, shooting at skeet. And then he introduced me to uh, one of the, one of the higher ups. If I had to say I'm successful, it's because I was able to get the job I want for the company I wanted to work for. You know, there weren't a lot of options up here in Northwest Ohio for solar companies. There was this one company I wanted to work with. I got an introduction and I was able to get the job I wanted at the income that worked without any gap in employment. You're working in renewable energy, but little did you know that it's also a renewable career. I think that uh, the key takeaway is that becoming an expert in a growing industry that is desirable seems to be a pretty good way to ensure that you are employed. This company does most of their recruiting right out of uh, college, out of these construction programs. A lot of the, the, the folks there who are in senior positions are younger than I am. And then they were recruited right out of school. People get very indoctrinated into um, a singular approach to business execution. Suddenly, I'm finding myself in a position where now I'm the agent of change within this group. The agent of change. I am because you get a I've been... It's, it's very rare that they bring someone on board with real-world experience. Everyone fakes it to some extent, greater or lesser. And that always got me there. They're just, just, just the, the, the faking it, you know, acknowledging when it's in a safe environment that I need to learn something has always kind of been a good fallback position for me. And that's how I've actually, you know, gained a lot of the knowledge that I've got and that I can lean on. Part of me feels honestly that I haven't faced enough challenges in the, the path I set out for myself. And part of that could be due to the fact that I just haven't been as ambitious as I could have been. You're doing well. You're making good money. You like the stuff that you do. How would being more ambitious actually even help you? Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with those of us who, who don't necessarily want to be the rogue leader. I want to be Red Five. <laughs> um, even though, you know, I've made some real intentional choices in the direction of my career, my personality, I'm content to stay within my, my comfort zone. Like, like at the skeet shoot. So my company in Texas, their annual company, you know, outing was to a cool skeet shooting place. They were, you know, really nice people. I mean, they all owned tons of guns, but they were all really cool people. Golden but, um, skeet guns. Yeah. What do but, they do um, with the guns? Oh, they just talked about them. You know, they laid them out and talked about them. Cleaned them. You know? Well, no, it was just kind of a bring your gun to work and show it off to your coworkers. So what kind of guns were there? Automatics you know, very military looking. <laughs> um, I went shooting uh, a handful of times the, the 10 or so years I lived in Texas. So I'm not a gun guy. The only time I ever shot was in Winstead. Well, Riverton and in the air surrounding area, there's a place in the woods along the Riverton River where all the gun nuts go. The Farmington River uh, in Riverton. I get it. I get the appeal. It is fun to shoot a gun. It really but, is. Um, we talked about it, uh, about, you know, having a, having a gun in the house. When you were in Texas... Yeah. Because yeah, they just give uh, one to everybody who lives there. We had some really good friends who were gun enthusiasts. Uh -huh. They were like normal in every way. But, you know, they had a gun safe chock-a-block full of guns. Um, like how many? Dozens. Several dozens. <laughs> so many Dutch people have the idea that all Americans own guns. Yeah. I, which I, we don't. It seemed to me living in Texas, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, by no means say the majority of people we knew were, were gun-toting Texans, but most people I knew who had guns also had like concealed carry licenses. And dozens um, of guns. Yeah. People would just drive around with guns in their glove compartments. I remember when a uh, long time ago, Marlene and I went out to visit Ed when he lived in Minneapolis and Marlene took a picture of me standing in front of the Mall of America and there's a sign on the door that says that it's illegal to, to bring firearms into the Mall of America. <laughs> um, but, you know, my I have a, a, a buddy that was a, a co-worker who, I mean, he is the most progressive guy I've met. Like him and his partner are now retired in their 50s and they're literally going to Vermont to build a yurt and live off the grid hardcore Second Amendment guns rights guy. Mm -hmm. um, and I could not have a rational argument with him about the need for gun control in the U.S., you know, despite the fact of there being a mass shooting every other day. Sure. 
I, I, I don't really understand. Like, gun control doesn't necessarily have to mean that, you know, they're banning guns. So, yeah, uh, I'm just going to get a longbow and take up archery or I'm, tennis. I'm going to get a Nerf gun. <laughs> I don't even want my kids to have Nerf guns. <laughs> I I, uh, I don't have a Nerf gun, but I, I mean, I think it would be fun. Have you seen Nerf guns? Not recently, but... There are long Nerf guns. Yeah. They're very militarized. I feel like Nerf is probably taking some money from the Department of Defense or something because they are like getting like bigger and more ferocious. If you brought a Nerf gun to bring your your gun to <laughs> to work day, would you be would you be made fun of by your coworkers? Oh, for sure. I was the first non-Texan they'd ever hired. Oh. Um, yeah, which was kind of a, a point of pride for me. That was a workplace that was really tense during a global pandemic where not everyone was getting vaccinated. And there were people, um, you know, myself as a diabetic who wanted to be very careful. And there were some other people who have health conditions. And it was really a bummer that it went the way it went during a pandemic where they were really, we'd all worked remotely for about nine months. And then they said, we want you back in the office. We want bodies in the office. And I understand why you'd want that as an employer, but it's like, you gotta be flexible. And they were inflexible. And that ended up driving some people away. It didn't drive me away because I was very happy to get out of my house. I hear you. I, I, I like having, you know, the ability to work from home. The key word is option. I mean, the other nice thing about having that flexibility, the hybrid work scenario is like, I got to take the kids to school this morning. Yeah, that's dope, right? It's nice. Uh, we, we, can, we can walk to school now, which is really sweet. When we lived in Texas, when they did kindergarten in Texas, they would catch the school bus. The school bus would come, pick them up right in front of our house at like quarter after seven every morning. It was just way too early, but that would have been perfect for working for a construction company because now that I'm working for a construction company, I've got to jump on these meetings at 8 a.m. And, you know, they don't need to be to school till nine. Being somewhere in person at 730 in the morning, you know, that's the world of construction. I, I come from a position where I'm like, yeah, I've got this expertise and now I'm in a new world and I'm literally staying one lesson ahead of the class. Oh yeah, that's tough. I'm working Ohio, Michigan, and Illinois. They're all different and they're all distinct and there's a lot of overlap in the nuts and bolts, but in terms of like all of the local policy positions and how it works with the respective electric utilities and all of that boring stuff, that's where, that's really where the deal gets made. It, it is, it is exciting and a little scary. They just, uh, they started this email campaign because we're doing this big push into Illinois where probably 300 emails went out yesterday with an embedded video of me making a short little pitch in the email. And the landing page has, I'm Andrew, your Illinois solar expert. <laughs> I know for sure I'm not an Illinois solar expert. And there are people who are Illinois solar experts. So, I, you know, I'm just going to, it's one of those, you know, you just have to just fake it till you make it. And, um, you know, it's that kind of campaign where they can see who clicked through to the landing page. So the, the couple of folks that clicked through, I'm going to pick up the phone and give them a call this afternoon. Well, it's a good thing you don't have data protection laws. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never been uh, privy to that kind of um, marketing savvy before, but it's pretty exciting, you know, to have those kinds of resources. But it's also terrifying. It's completely terrifying. I'm kind of in that honeymoon phase. It's a new it's a new job with a new company. So people's expectations are kind of, you know, aligned differently when you are the new guy. Both in that I have a longer leash, you know, as I'm learning the ways of this of this new organization. You know, I'm the new guy on the team and I I want to show that much more hustle. Everybody's out to prove themselves. I mean, that's that's how, you know, how you get ahead. It sounds like you're super passionate about this. I don't know why it's surprising to me that you're so passionate about your job. And I like it. <laughs> I think it's great. I just, I'd say I'm, I'm passionate about the idea of what I do for a living. I'm not passionate when I'm picking up the phone to try to get a, a CFO on the line to gauge their interest in increasing their net operating income through an on-site energy program. Those day-to-day -day steps to make it happen, I'm not as passionate about as I am passionate about the end goal, which is more renewable energy out there in the world. 
I kind of acknowledge that we spend very little time talking about the climate crisis. I've done a lot of solar projects and maybe it's showing our customers or our employees that we care about the environment and we want to practice that good stewardship and reduce our carbon footprint. But that's like the icing on the cake. It's mostly about the money. It's all about the money. Well, when it's, you know, what's cool is when it's for the public sector, if it's for a K through 12 school, it's still all about the money. It's about, you know, how much we're saving on our electricity costs. They at least have that. We can integrate this into our, our STEM curriculum and ignite the imaginations of the, of the next generation of people who are going to be working on these problems. I've done a little bit of pro bono work where we kind of help a STEM club on their green roof project. Of course, it's all done in the hope that it could lead to some future business. Business. But you know, like oh, those really? Were, yeah, hey, <laughs> I don't want to shortchange theater as a course of study, but very few of the people that I, I went to school with are making their livelihood, at least on the performing side. I know of a, of a small handful, and it's great to see them pop up in commercials. But no one is, you know, blowing up their IMDb with, you know, the kind of career path that makes you a, a, a celebrity, which I think is probably in a lot of people's back of minds when they set out in the performance world. Yeah, I think probably to a certain extent. But I always like hearing the stories about the working actors who constantly work and have a very good living, but nobody knows who they are. Like not even character actors, just people in commercials and people in whatever, like corporate videos, or you know, just people who make a, an, an honest living, a really good, honest living acting, and no one has any idea who they are. They're completely anonymous. Yeah, the, your, your journeyman, you know, I, that's, that's, that's cool. And that's hard work. I'm just curious, like, you know, how often do you have to get your teeth whitened to be there? You know, I had to have a professional headshot done for my new job that that has never happened before. You know, I mean, it's a construction company. Some people do it one with the jacket on, some with the jacket off, with the tie on, with the tie off. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm leaving the tie on. I'm leaving the jacket on. These are, these are choices that you made. You know, my career, I've been working for construction companies, yeah. you know, so it's not even like business casual. You can wear jeans to work. Right. You know, as long as you're wearing a shirt that's got a collar on it, uh -huh. you're fine. I did ask Gretchen, I'm like, did he whiten my teeth? I think he may have whitened my teeth. Oh, they, they probably, they, I don't know what they do. That's a, that's a weird business. I used to look at that type of photography all the time at work because they made websites for photographers and many of those photographers make a lot of money doing corporate photography. There's an Instagram account you should check out. It's called, I think it's called Ordinary People Memes and it's <laughs> exclusively corporate images and, and people write things on them. It'll just be this guy with a very all business haircut smiling, wearing his tie and his shirt. And then the quote on it will just say, if you get a blazer or a sport coat instead of the suit, you'll give yourself more options. He's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but that's what I mean. It's like, do you miss being in the arts? Because it doesn't sound like you do. I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd get to sleep later, I suppose. Um, that's for sure. I never really made a living in the arts. I didn't have anyone there kind of driving me forward, you know, saying audition for my show. Yeah, I've got this thing. No one no one really cared anymore. Because everybody was so hungry for their own thing. Yeah. Um so it was it was easy to say give in to that reluctance to audition. But do I miss performing? Do I miss doing it? Do I miss having that that kind of outlet? Uh, absolutely. I remember you always talking about how your dad, when he got remarried, you said that he got involved with bands at the church and stuff and, and how it, it was really good for him. You described it as being like this rejuvenating thing for him. Oh, yeah. And he called me out. I remember being an angry teen and getting in an argument, probably in public, <laughs> calling him a sellout for not not playing music anymore yeah he brought that up not not too long ago he's like yeah he's like so how's your sales job going you know and he had a solid ground to stand on uh -huh. in in throwing that back at me yeah uh, i mean hey i'm sure i wasn't the first 17 year old to uh throw a tantrum in public and call their father a sellout obviously it was unfair of me but you know i um have these notions i mean of uh you know, playing music with other people again. But even that, I mean, the last time I played music, like with any degree of intention with other people was when I was living in Santa Fe 10 years ago, you know, and we're just getting together with a group of friends and goofing around. Now my, now my routine is I'll play guitar out in the hallway while my kids are in the bathtub so I can keep an ear on them. 
and not get like, you know, distracted watching or listening some, to something. But it's also, it's a fun exercise to kind of play four chords and make up a song with a six-year-old. They're very game, especially if it's a song about themselves. They're so game. So, so centered. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? Uh, <laughs> well, not me. No one is approaching it with any any degree of uh, intention yet, though, because they flip flop. I'm like, do you want to take piano lessons? And like, no, 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 I want to play guitar. And I'm like, you sure you want to play guitar? No, 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 I want to play drums. And um, like, I, I don't know. As a parent, do you choose for them or do you wait for them? I don't know. I sort of wait for them, but there's a family of musicians in the school that they go to, and I was talking to the father, and he's he's a composer. And Marlene was talking one time with their mother. Evidently, she says it doesn't have to be as crazy as they make it out on TV. Like kids end up hating playing piano because someone's sitting there smacking your fingers with a ruler for 30 or 40 minutes. And yeah, of course, that's going to create bad feelings. But she said if they can get through 10 minutes of it every day, that's fine. And then if they show promise and they go to the next level, that's when you want to introduce the idea of doing more practice. But for a, for a kid, if you can get a kid to focus on it for just 10 minutes a day, it makes a gigantic difference. And they, they will actually develop the skill to be able to do it. It's funny the things that they latch on to, the concepts. I'll use the phrase, uh, you're killing me. When I'm frustrated, it's like, oh, you're killing me. Just get in the bathtub or whatever and then one time we were sitting on the couch i don't even remember what was happening but um but ruby said to doris you're killing papa <laughs> oh, <it's the laughs> you know it's not a good feeling is the first time i heard um my little girl say jesus christ <laughs> just like an exhausted 40 something year old dude <laughs> with that the same intonation yeah. and line reading i'm pretty good about not swearing in front of them i do say jesus christ but they don't seem to latch on to that i was really really terrified that they were going to come out of that first shelter in place that whatever it was nine months just cursing like sailors can only take so much well and also i work with construction guys yeah man i got in i mean i i really like stepped out of line um it was fairly early on when i was working for the guys i was working for in texas and i was having a conversation with someone and i i used that that expletive i don't want to put on your air but you know where you're dropping that f-bomb within the blasphemy if that makes sense I know what you mean. And I heard from the next room over, hey, and it was my my boss at the time who, you know, grew up very Southern Baptist and was very religious. And, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I apologize. I'm, I'm just a I'm just a heathen from the north. That was a big eye opener for me is just as far as, you know, just being more aware. It's a different world when you're down there in Texas. You can get away with a lot more casual racism. I learned very early on, which was really a bummer. I learned very quickly. There's no value in engaging. I, I learned early on, just walk out, walk away and don't walk away in any kind of where you're trying to make a statement about your walking away. Just, just, just saunter off. And, uh, yeah, it's bad but, news. Um, it, it is bad news. And it, it, it's, um, uh, a buddy who was, um, he, you know, he's been doing solar stuff for a long time. He's in his early 60s. And he was one of the people that really struggled with the company's lax COVID policy because he is a cancer survivor and has like legitimate cause, cause for concern. And well, it basically, yeah, dude, that totally screws up your immune system. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's on, a, he, he's on a lot of medication. So, you know, he was very resistant to the notion of like, why, you know, why force me to come be in this workplace? No, that's bad form. Out of like 14 people in the office, about 12 of uh, them, including my, my coworker I just mentioned, uh, tested positive, like in the course of a week, yeah. like literally only myself and one other guy, um, didn't catch it. When Gretchen called me and said I tested positive, I drove straight to the doctor. And of course I didn't have it and I didn't have any antibodies. So I asked them before I left, you know, Hey, here's my scenario. Do you have anything you can give me like prophylactically that might give me? And I don't remember what it was, but I think it was, it was one of those horse tranquilizers <laughs> or one of those. I think it was one of those. Nice. But I think I got ivermectin. And I remember the first day she was in quarantine, it was a Saturday. The kids were all home and I got so dizzy. I, I, I had to take a knee in the kitchen because I was like, Oh, for real? I'm, I'm going to pass out. And then, yeah. And like, I took a knee. And then had to run and got like violently sick, like 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 hardcore nausea. Whoa, um, that sounds awful. Yeah, 
and I, I didn't put it together until like after that whole experience, like after she was out of quarantine and all of that, I was talking to a, a different a nurse practitioner and I was like, yeah, so, um, you know, so here's what they gave me, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, I would have never given you that. And I was like, really? Should I not have taken it? She's like, yeah, you weren't showing any symptoms and they have no idea what those side effects were going to be. And that was when it dawned on me. Oh yeah. Remember that morning when I almost passed out in the kitchen and huh. got violently ill? Well, it seems to me that the biggest downside to leaving Texas is the barbecue. Yeah, that was a big one. That's not fair of me to say. Honestly, my only regret about leaving Texas is that we didn't live there long enough for my kids to really develop a twang. That would definitely be cute. I just thought having that little bit of twang would just serve them well throughout their lives. The woman who cut my hair in Texas uh, was, I forget, I think she was Lithuanian or something. You know, so she had this really nice Eastern European accent, but her kids all had the, the Texas twang in there. And she's like, yeah, your kids won't talk like you. They'll talk like who they, who they hear all day at school. And now they're going to talk like Ohioans, Buckeyes, I mean. Like Buckeyes, which I think is the, uh, like the kind of the straight down the middle Midwestern broadcaster. I never realized I, that there was a Connecticut accent. Dude, I got to go. Okay, buddy. Is there anything you'd like to say before you leave? Do you want to read some Shakespearean quote or a monologue from a movie or something? I just want to talk about the TV show Severance. The premise is there's an operation you can undergo wherein your work self is, is a totally separate mental entity than your outside work self. So you go into work and you forget your outside life. So the people in your work environment, you don't know if you're married, have a family, have kids, you are just, you only exist in the workplace. And then when you leave work, you remember nothing of what you just did for the past eight hours. It sounds like I have to watch this as research for my podcast. Thanks for coming on the show. (laughs) All right, man. Be well. Uh, Yeah, you too. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. That was Andrew. He labeled himself the first all-business guy right from the start, and I didn't quite believe it, but it does indeed sound like he is deeply into the business end of things, even if it is sometimes business casual. When we stopped hanging out due to great distances back in 2008, he was a real estate guy, and now he's still selling stuff, but his lingo and his pitch has totally changed. I can't say that I'm fired up about sales stuff, but it's nice to see that someone can find a new career and adapt and evolve and thrive at different stages of life. That's something that I struggle with. Anyway, it sounds to me like he's much appreciated by his employers, and I don't think it's going to take him very long to become the solar expert for Indiana. It was Indiana, right? Thanks for being on the show, Andrew. I'll talk to you soon. Also, thanks to Ed at BoomCost.com for the post-production and audio services. That's B-O-O-M-K-A-A-S dot com. If you have any sort of audio needs, definitely contact Ed. He will hook you up. And thanks to you for listening. I know that your time is valuable, and I appreciate you giving some of it to me. If you want to give me some more time, you can find more fun Feel Free to Deviate content on Instagram at Feel Free to Deviate. Tell a friend about it, or tell 10 friends. It would be really great if you could do that. And, you know, tell someone about the podcast, or share your favorite episode. Word of mouth is the best way to disseminate a podcast, and I can only tell so many people. Up next is Arna Reimer. He's a photographer who teaches and makes books. He also loves jazz. Check him out in two weeks. Until then, keep up the good work, or try to do better, or get the help that you need. Seriously, sometimes everybody needs help. Goodbye for now, and thanks again for listening. 